This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Norm. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Norm. Love ya. Hello. Hello. Hi, how you doing, Mark? I'm good, Dad. How you doing? Good. The picture looks just like Aaron. Isn't that a trip? Yeah. You know, I drew that picture of you, Aaron, three times. Yeah. I'll have to take pictures of the other two and send them to you. The first one really didn't look like you at all. And yeah. The, and then the second one started to look more like you. And yeah. The, and then the third one, clearly, Aaron showed up. <laughs> yeah. Trippy. Yeah, it's trippy. It was cool, though. It was really, it was kind of fun. What are you guys going to do tomorrow? We're just going out with Rachel and Aaron for dinner. We didn't want to party or anything. Just, you know, just family. That's all. Yeah. That's good. Where are you going to go eat, do you know? Yeah, I need Roy's. Where's that? Roy's is on Topanga near Victory. It's uh, like Hawaiian steakhouse. I don't know what it's called. But their short ribs are like butter. Like butter. They are so good. Like butter. So, cool. I'll just go there. Fun. And tomorrow morning at Ralph's, I guess all the girls are planning a little something to take and stuff. Why don't you jump out of a cake in front of Ralph's Market? Yeah, I will, and I'm not going to have anything on. Then they won't be able to eat anything. That's true. Well, they probably won't eat. They'll probably all just die right there of shock. Probably. So you're the opening of the show because it's your birthday. Oh, okay. You've been around the sun 80 times now. you got to be tired. Actually, except for my lungs, I feel pretty good. Yeah. But my lungs have just been shot lately, so they're making me tired. Yeah. And I looked it up on the computer today, and the three medications I take is the only thing they can do for it. Well, I'm really glad that you actually looked things up, because I was a little concerned when I talked to you last time. I said, what do you take? And you said, I don't know, whatever they give me. Yeah, I, I looked it up, and... Uh, What's weird is too, also that you can get this from anything, from contaminated water, dust. Yeah. I mean, it's not likely, but what's scary is, you know who gets this? Who? People with AIDS, because their immune system is so right, bad right. that they, they get MAC. Yeah. But I've never had it this bad. This is good. I'm talking to you a long time. Yeah. And have not coughed. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is show number 50. Number 50, this is my 50th show. And uh, Mr. Adrian Zamed of T.J. Hooker and Grease 2, the movie, and The Bachelor with Tom Hanks. And uh, uh-huh. he called in to wish you a happy birthday. And Martha from the motels actually sung happy birthday to you. Very good. A bunch of nice people, friends of mine, called in to wish you a happy birthday. Very good. Adrian Zamed. You guys are co-starring okay. on, on the show today. So you're saying I'm the star? Well, you're the star because you've got seniority. Because I'm old? Yeah, you're much older. Dad, I, I love you, and uh, I hope you have some fun tomorrow. 
And, uh, I love you too. And everybody thinking about you. I've got 4,000 friends on Facebook. They all know it's your birthday tomorrow, Dad. None of them really give a shit, but they all know <laughs> that it's your birthday tomorrow. When's the show? It's coming up right after this. Hey, hey, Norm. This is Adrian Zmed from the TV show TJ Hooker. I wanted to wish you a happy 80th birthday. Many, many more. You're from Mark that you're quite a fan of TJ Hooker. So happy to hear that. Thanks for all your fan support all these years. So you might be interested to know that I just saw Bill Shatner yesterday, and we're talking about getting ourselves back together again. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Check one, two, two. What are you doing today? Today. Well, I... Today. I woke up at sunrise today. What time was that? Five. Huh? Why'd you get up so early? I don't know. I just woke up and I saw the sun coming up and it was looked really beautiful and red and nice and uh... You got out of bed? Or you just kind of kinda lounged? Lounged. I had yeah. a lion, they call it. You what? In England, we call it a lion. A lion? I like that. I had a lion. Hi. How'd it taste? Uh... <laughs> It was good, yeah. It was good. It was good. Did you hear about those lions? The ones that ate the poachers? I did. Talk about getting even. That's karma. I guess they didn't even get an opportunity to poach. They kind of got them in their sleep, and there was not much left. They found very little remains of these dudes. Poaching rhinos. That's right. Speaking of poaching... I don't eat eggs anymore. I know you don't. (laughs) I don't either. Didn't you just get back in town? I did, from Costa Rica. What'd you do over there? I went to a retreat called Rhythmia. What's that? It is technically an ayahuasca retreat. What's that? Ayahuasca is ancient plant medicine. Where's it come from? It comes from uh, many places. Jungles of Peru, Brazil, Colombia, Costa Rica, Hawaii. How old is it? They say it's probably the oldest plant on earth, or one of the oldest. This is what they call the mother plant. Uh Uh-huh. Grandmother. The mother. Mamacita. The Divine Feminine. So you drink it like a tea. It's a tea, basically, yeah. and you drink a cup of it. And How's uh, it taste? It's like eating dirt. Do you like the taste of mushrooms? I love them. I'm talking about magic mushrooms, not Portobello fucking... mushrooms? No, dude. Oh, not magic... shiitake, dude. No. Not magic cooking mushrooms. mushrooms aren't the best tasting. No, they're not. No. And isn't just an acquired taste anyway? Sure. I think it's an acquired taste. I mean, I'm getting used to it. I've done it seven times, which isn't very much, but... Over what period of time? Two years, I've done it seven times. How many times did you do it this last time? Four. That's four in a row, right? Four nights in a row, and uh, that was intense, man. Everyone's a little nervous, apprehensive, you know, scared, which which I don't blame them. I was one of the only people that had ever done it, so a lot of people were turning to me for advice. Oh, newbies. There were 57 people doing it, and um, we were in like a big temple. First night was, I think, a Peruvian medicine. Second night was Brazilian, or no, Costa Rican, Brazilian. And then the, the last night was the Yahweh, they call it, the Colombian medicine, which was like literally drinking a glass of mud. That's the night that I, I, I had a rough night. But the first three nights for me were like ecstatic. Living in the fifth dimension felt godlike. It was amazing. The fourth night is when I really had to do the work. You've had your fun buckle up. Literally threw up on the way back to my floor mat. When I was getting my second pour, I collapsed. When you vomit, when you purge, people are afraid of purging, but it's the best thing that could possibly happen. You know, like I said, people are afraid, I don't like vomiting, but it's really more of a cleaning out of old energies. Going in with intent is really important. I've written down intents, gone in with specific things, or you can just go in and it'll come to you. And you don't vomit out like a bunch of tamales and shit. It's just like a, it's like a black 
liquid. Oh my God. I remember when this happened when I was 10 years old and it scarred me then, and then it's gone. We have all these stored energies that if you don't deal with it, where does it go? It stays in you. Yeah. It stays buried. I had about 40 to 60 seizures on the fourth night. I guess you'd call them a seizure. I was jumping, just bolting like someone took the defibrillators, put them on my heart, just bam, jumped off the mat. It felt like it went on for hours. And I've equated it to just things I've been holding in since childhood, since who knows when, right? Just clearing their way out. Felt like I got hit by a car the next day, but also felt 200 pounds lighter, you know? And you could have something that, that the Colombians call the nada, where nothing happens. So, Because there were a couple of people that said, nothing happened, I just went to sleep, and then I woke up and it was over. They're like, you should be grateful. Because the nada means... Nada means nothing. Right, it takes you back to when you were first conceived. It takes you all the way back and fixes the layers. And apparently if you're awake, it's too much for you to handle to be awake. So the medicine puts you asleep and lets the work get done. I saw a woman, she had a very hard exterior. She was very like, hi, how are you? Like, that's it, professional, like, hello, okay. On the fourth night, we heard this woman, I mean, because we're all in our journeys, but, but we're all connected. So when one of our brothers or sisters is having a very tough time, we can all easily go there and want to help her or him. She just screamed out. While I was under, I got off of my journey and realized that she had realized that, that her father was abusing her. It was pretty heavy, man. They had to actually carry her outside because it was so loud. But the next day when I saw her, everything looked different. She actually looked like a different human being. Physically, this medicine apparently rewires your DNA and actually can physically change you spiritually, mentally, physically, become reborn. She was like someone who had chains on, unlocked, and yeah. she's out. And it was amazing. Gave her a big kiss on the forehead. <laughs> but this is not the shortcut or the hack like the Western doctors give us. This is the work. If you do the work, if you do this work, yeah, your life will change. Do this little bit of work, yes. and then you never have to do that work again. That's right. And you don't need the pharmacology to help you. Yes. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. You just have to break that social conditioning and open that door. You have to step outside the box. Well, that's why it takes people like us, which I like to call light workers, to plant seeds and hopefully open these doors for these people and help them through. I think if we can reach 10% of the world, it's going to just come to them. The rest of the people will just fall in line. I believe so. And those that don't anyway, we're all going to die. So a lot of these people who absolutely think what we're saying is malarkey, as they yep. used to say. Malarkey. Hogwash. Hogwash. These people are going away. Guess who's on the show? Adrian Zamed. That is correct. I know him very well. His boys are in the Everly Brothers experience? Yes, yeah, Zach and Dylan Zamed. Yeah, they're super popular, right? Super popular. They're booked all the time, on the road, killing 120, it? 130 shows a year. That's fantastic. Amazingly talented young men. Adrian is a super down-to-earth, nice guy. He's just a dude. He's a dude. Yeah. He was on TJ Hooker. Yeah. He was in a bachelor party with Tom, Tom Hanks. Right. He was in a movie called Grease 2 with Michelle Pfeiffer. He was one of the Thunderbirds. I know he's got a great voice. Yeah, and he did Broadway. You know, he did Grease. That's right. Yeah, he's amazing. Adrian's med today. Hope you enjoy the show.
Hey, this is Gene Burnett wishing Norm Ehrensberg a very happy 80th birthday. Oh, my God. And uh, nice work producing Mark. Uh, he's a good production. <laughs> Take care. Happy birthday. This is a happy birthday message for Norm. My name is Jeff Pivar. My wife, Inger, and I are very good friends of your son, Mark. And we heard it was a very special birthday today. So we wanted to send our love and congratulate you for 80 trips around the sun and here's to the next 80. Hey Adrian, it's Mark Ahrensberg. How are you, Mark? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So what's it like up there in Ashland today? We've had some pretty heavy rain the past couple of days. So it's... Ah. It sounds very slippery out there, is what it sounds like. Oh, yeah. You know, I have not been there yet. My wife literally was there with her mother two weeks ago for a funeral. They had an uncle that passed away uh, over there. And uh, as you know, my sons have been there quite a lot and actually have been thinking about buying a place there. And it just sounds like it's a real cool, magical place. It's an excellent lifestyle, that's for sure. I've been here 15 years. It's a great home base, super sweet community, no traffic, air quality is pretty good most of the time. It's chill, people say hi and make eye contact with you. Cool. It's kind of a hug fest. Everybody's kind of in love with each other. So, yeah, it's super fun. From what uh, Rich was saying, that there's quite a creative community up there uh, in, in the arts, in every aspect uh, of the arts. That's also a very different mentality with people who are artistic and how they approach life rather than the corporate business life. Well, the people in the town are definitely of that nature, very artistic, creative, a highly intellectual community. But the governing body of this town does not necessarily reflect its citizens. Uh-huh. It's a cool town, but it's conservative on the outside and super sweet, interesting, flexible, reasonable on the inside. Cool. Come for a visit, check it out. I mean, we've got Shakespeare right here, man. This is world-class theater. Actually, I have a very good friend. I did a movie with him who actually is a resident member of the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I've been uh, toying with the idea of coming up and, uh, and doing a show there. Probably how I'm going to end up being there. I think it's a fantastic idea, man. I mean, you live in L.A., don't you? No, I live in Vegas now. Oh, okay. Well, I noticed you had an 818 prefix, which is the valley. I lived in the valley forever. And I was hardly there in these past 10 years. It was just my sons that were in the home that I had there. And now that they're on the road pretty much 99% of the time, there was no reason to hold on to the place anymore. So I literally just got rid of the place a few months ago. Where in the valley was it? Uh, Tarzana. I lived in Tarzana. I lived right off of uh, Ventura and Wilbur. Yeah, know it well. Yeah. Total valley, dude. Oh, God, the Galleria. Oh, Lord. Sherman Oaks Galleria, that's right. Got married in a place in the valley on Coldwater Canyon that turned into a place called Val Surf. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Val Surf? Do you remember that place, Val Surf? On, of course uh, I do. I spent so much time at Val Surf with my son. Well, do you know what it was before it was Val Surf? Well, I used to live on uh, Whitsit. It was my first apartment when I moved from New York to L.A. I was literally right down the street on Whipset. It was between Magnolia and Riverside. Yeah. So Val Surf was right there at Riverside. Yeah. But before it was Val Surf in 1983, 
when I was 20 and got married. It was a place called the Colonial House. I remember that because I moved into that apartment in like 79, and uh, uh, we were there for a couple of years at least before we got our first home in L.A., so I remember the Colonial House. I just did the math like four or five days ago and realized I was only four years out of high school when I got married. What a dumbass. Yeah. Holy cow, man. Dude, I was still in high school. <laughs> really? When you got married? Yeah, we were high school sweethearts. I was 20. So, yeah, look, the wonderful thing out of that marriage was my two sons. What you just said, we have two fantastic children together. We just don't have to be together anymore. Yeah, I get it. I, I totally get it. Yeah. How long were you married the first time when you rolled out at 20? 14 years. And then went through a, another marriage that I thought, well, I'm an adult now. It was the craziest marriage ever. This heart is my disease. And I can't find
I never thought I'd get married again, and now I'm married about this for six years at this point to my current wife. Everything's wonderful. On a personal note, Mark, after the second marriage, I kind of realized that I had no idea who Adrian was. I only knew who Adrian was as a husband and a father, and I had never dated. <laughs> Weren't you not married in between the first and second wife? I almost went straight from the first wife to the second wife. I was doing Grease on Broadway, and uh, she was playing Sandy, and uh, I got married pretty much right away. So like I said, not much dating going on, and I had no idea who who I was. But between the second and third, because I had decided, that's it, no more, I'm not going to do this anymore, I kind of discovered who I was after several years. And... uh, understood myself a lot better and understood what I really wanted in life out of a human being. Mark is, is that here I was after the second marriage, never having dated, really not having a lot of responsibilities and stuff. I was a kid in the candy store, just kind of like 
dating them at that point. And uh, what I realized, I was attracting the same kind of dysfunctional human being into my life because I found myself worse in, uh, in being an enabler and fixing people. And I, I realized that what I really didn't need in this world was somebody who needed to be fixed. I needed a whole person to share it with. It was an interesting <laughs> several years of, of finding out uh, who I really, really was. And now everything's wonderful. You don't need them to make you whole, but you're perfectly happy alone, but this just doubles your fun and your experience. That is the realization that I came to. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I didn't need to be with anybody. I want to be with somebody rather than I need to. Yeah. I've got some buddies who are going through second divorce, and all I see them doing is making all the mistakes that I did. They feel they need somebody in their lives to complete themselves. And I remember one of the things that I had read was, if you can't spend a night with yourself, why would somebody else want to spend a night with you? Yeah. <laughs> if you enter a relationship saying, oh, I see you need this, and I need something from you, the second you enter a relationship and needing something from somebody and they don't satisfy that need, it all blows up. Where's the education for us so we aren't thrown into life completely ill-prepared? And some people never figure it out. <laughs> what are you doing with yourself? I was in the UK for the past uh, nine months, uh, recently home. It was a tour of La Caja Falls and uh, really, really successful tour. And uh, the producer wants to bring it into the West End and is looking for a theater. But the West End's pretty packed right now. Once the holiday season comes in the UK, they do this thing called pantomime. <laughs> and it's not what we consider pantomime. It's a very strange animal that they do during the holidays. They take fairy tales and uh, make a twist on the fairy tales. It's a little trouble finding a theater right now, so I'm kind of waiting for that. And I'm very much in limbo right now because I'm waiting to find out whether the show is going into the West End for the fall. And then there's another project that uh, uh, Bill Shatner and I are working on right now, and I'm waiting on that right now. I, I don't really want to talk about it. Another project that will bring the two of us together. It's a twist on what we did before and very fun. And at this point, Bill is 87 years old, but he's like the, the energized rabbit. You know, he just keeps on going and going and going. He's, he's insane. He's uh, an inspiration to us all. We should all have his energy at 87 years old, jumping around the globe the way that he does and all. But yeah, I'm actually quite excited about both of these projects. My first love has always been the theater. And fortunately, at this time of my life, I can choose to do what I really want to do. And that's where my greatest love always lies. And uh, what I just did in the UK was really something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I've never actually been to the UK. And I just spent nine months, and I did 31 cities in nine months over there, and it was just a, such a fulfilling experience artistically for me in, in so many ways. The people in, in the U.K. love theater so much, and you feel it. And, of course, you have the Oregon Shakespeare Festival there, so there's definitely a, a love of theater in your area. It's, it's probably one of the greatest rep theaters in the United States that we have, yeah. which is another reason why I've always wanted to go there, because I know that there's such a, a reputation for that, the organization that is famous among the people who love theater. I was there in England for nine months. In the nine months that I was in England, in the United States, there were five national tours. Maybe six, I think. Half of those were not even union equity. While I was in the UK, which is the size of Florida, there were 26 national tours, all supportive, 
both tax houses, every show that's out there is supported, and people treat theater like it's going to movies. They bring the kids. It's something that kids grow up doing. In the United States, the place that we have that this is done regularly is New York, is Broadway. That's where the love of theater is. And then these pockets, like in Ashland, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and stuff, there are these pockets everywhere, but not like it is in England. And it was just an absolute nine-month joy for me to, to be there. Plus, it's just a great show, and he's a great character. So that's fun. And now Bill has come up with this idea, and this is another fun thing for us to do. And again, I'm at a point where I, I can kind of do what I want to do. Thank God. I've had a wonderful acting career, and uh, it's kind of nice to be able to pick and choose what you want to do, and you don't have to do necessarily do it for money. Yeah, that's not work. That's love. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that, and there's a couple of projects that I've been wanting to get on their feet for a while. There's actually a, a show that I did many, many years ago. I want to revive it because I really think it's a, it's a show that actually could be franchised very nicely, and I'm actually in the process of putting that together. Basically, in a nutshell, it's TV icons of the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s singing TV theme songs and telling their stories while they're growing up in front of the camera. I'm in the process of putting a tour of that together for next year. And your two sons are doing the Everly Brothers experience, and I had someone in my apartment last night, and I played him some of their promo video. He was blown away at how not only they nailed the music, but their whole presence is so spot on in their storytelling, and they look great. I mean, they're just good-looking young men with monster well, talent. thank you, thank you. <laughs> Those boys literally grew up backstage. They're in the process of putting a more multimedia into their show, and I've been going through videos of way back when they were four, five, six, seven, eight years old, and all of the backstage antics and all of the stuff that they did and how it was just inevitable that they would become what they are doing right now. And if I didn't think they were, this is a, a difficult business. <laughs> I would be the first one to probably say, guys, this is a tough business. You're going to be in for a lot of heartbreak. But I've always known that they've had an enormous amount of talent. And I teach master classes at Stella Adler, and I say to my students, this business is about talent meeting opportunity. If you have the talent and you have the perseverance, the opportunity will come someday. Yeah. And it will happen. It's just the perseverance that you have to go through. And I think you probably know they had a, a band prior to this Everly Brothers thing that was a very successful band and critically acclaimed with amazing original music, but they weren't making any money doing it. And they started as a brother duo, and simply what they would do backstage with me, I'd be warming up vocally before a show, and they would be making fun of me and warming up with me uh, with all of the stupid antics that I went through with my vocal exercises. And when they were kids, I have a video of my buddy and I singing Dream with the Everly Brothers song, It's Dream. And the boys are chiming in with us. They've been doing this since they were like four, five, six years old. It was just kind of like a, a natural, duh, I could have had a V8 moment where they started playing these coffee houses and wine bars and stuff as a duo, unplugged. And the one thing led to another, and they were getting so much feedback with the Simon and Garfunkel stuff, the Everly Brothers, that they said, well, we should maybe try to do this. 
you know, regularly, and one thing led to another, and they've been working solidly for the past two years, and their books for the next three years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, God. Yeah, well, they're that good. <laughs> it's not luck. I mean, they've worked hard, and they've got incredible charisma, and the presentation is quite beautiful. And they're being themselves. They haven't changed since they were little kids, you know, backstage. That banter on stage is who they are. They're always goading each other and, and teasing each other, and they've brought that personality to the stage. And you're right, it isn't just luck. It has to do with a lot of talent and the fact that they're bringing their own personality to it all. And they're not doing, uh, like what they do here in Vegas, uh, a legend thing. They're not actually the Everly Brothers. They're just paying tributes to the Everly right. Brothers. It's really a lot of fun for me to sit back and say, thank you. <laughs> Finally, things are going the way they've been wanting things to go. Plus, the great thing is, is that they're still doing original music and they're slipping it into their show. And the crazy thing for me is they send me a text and say, hey, Dad, were we at this theater that we're playing here in Virginia? Were we at this theater here where we're playing in Calgary? They said it looks familiar. And I said, yep, you were there. They are playing the theaters that I played in my entire life. It's crazy. A lot of shows, musicals that go through these theaters, they sign walls. We all sign walls, and we do like a, a painting of our poster and stuff and sign it. And they're in theaters where they're seeing this. Oh, my God, I remember this. Yeah, there's that post. That's really kind of cool. It's pretty cool how things are lining up between your career and their careers, or at least how you've kind of nailed a path and they've done their own thing but yeah they were totally bred for this kind of work pretty much they know the whole lifestyle and everything and even to this day i kind of prep them a little on how to pass for touring <laughs> occasionally they give me a call and ask my advice on cities and and whatever and uh they were kind of like you put it quite brilliantly they were bred to do this <laughs> but they know it too and that must be an incredible bond between the three of you yeah, there is. They were always my best friends, and they still are. What year were you born, Adrian? 54. You were born in Chicago. Yes, I was born in Chicago. I was the only one in my family that was born in Chicago. My parents and my brothers were born in Romania, and uh, I actually had an opportunity to go to Romania while I was in the U.K. I had a couple of weeks off. Uh, my wife came out during that time, and we went to Romania for the very first time in my life. And that was a spiritual journey for me. It was really quite a remarkable thing. My father was a Romanian Orthodox priest. Orthodox priests can get married. He came to Chicago in a very bizarre way. That when Romania was communist, it was almost impossible for an entire family to get out of Romania and go to America. It was virtually almost impossible. But there was a unique situation where the priest at the church in Chicago passed away, and it was a, a Romanian congregation, and they only spoke Romanian even though they were in the United States, and they needed a Romanian-speaking priest to do the service, Romanian and stuff. And there were no young Romanian priests in the United States to do this. So my grandfather, who was already in the United States, was very connected politically, and he got uh, a senator in Illinois to help them get my father and the family from Romania to Chicago. And they were they were probably one of the first entire families to come out of a communist bloc country in the 1950s at that time, legally. So that's how they came to America. And then I was born a few years later after they came to, to America. But going back now to the time, 
I heard about the small town that my family was from, and it was really quite remarkable to be there. It seems like it hasn't changed from all of the stories that my father and mother had told me about this little town. My great-grandfather was a shepherd, and he was the last shepherd in that town. And my father told me stories of this tree that he used to sit with his grandfather, and he would play the flute while tending the, the flock and, the, and have lunch with him. I saw the tree and where this, this metal was that he would have the sheep. And, and it was really quite a, like I said, a spiritual journey for me to be at this place that my family had been described to me for years and years and years.
Were you able to um, meet up with any other family, any cousins or anybody still around? Quite a few that I had no idea uh, even existed. There was a family of Zmeds, and I honestly didn't even know that there were any Zmeds in Romania. Oh. And then all of a sudden, a cousin said, yes, there's a, a family of artists for Zmeds. And I hooked up with them in this little town that my family was from, and they actually took my wife and I around to all these little places where this meds, you know, uh, grew up. I'm actually anxious to bring Zach and Dylan to Romania now and expose them to all of their, their relatives. They're actually playing Ireland in the winter in, in December with their band, and the producer that produced the show that I did in the U.K. owns several theaters throughout the U.K., and he's booking them in his theater. If Lacazza Fall is not in the West End by that time, I probably will fly in. We may take a quick trip over to Romania. Yeah. That's cool that you have the potential to show them, or even that you got to do it at all, too, yourself. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I can't believe it's taken me this long in my life to have gotten to that point. But it was one of those things where I knew I had relatives there. And when you go to that part of the world, you don't just visit a relative for a few minutes and leave. It's like an all-day thing. It's about eating all day and then drinking wine. I knew I would have to spend a long time there <laughs> if I were to do this. Fortunately, I had like a couple of weeks, and I can't wait to take it back and go in there. It's pretty cool. So what was it like in the 60s growing up in Chicago? You know, it's so funny. Zach and, and Dylan say to me, Dad, you like grew up in one of the greatest times in the history of music. You think of what happened in the 50s, you know, rock and roll. I was a child, but I knew who Elvis was. I knew what was going on. And then my brothers were 10 years older than I. So they were in their teenage years when I, in the 60s, uh, you know, going to high school. So I was hearing all of these, like the Everly Brothers and, and Jerry Lee Lewis. And then all of a sudden, I was getting into my grade school years, and I was starting to hear about a band from England called The Beatles. So I formed a band and played the drums, and we discovered that I could sing better than I could play the drums. And my formative years of high school, it was The Who, it was Led Zeppelin. It, it was like I grew up in one of the greatest rock eras of all time. Yeah. Chicago was a great place to do this. I cannot tell you what a great life I had. I grew up five blocks from Wrigley Field and five blocks from the lake. And I spent my time either outside of Wrigley Field waiting for home run balls to come over the fence or at the beach on my summers. Do you know Chicago at all? Very little. I had to go there, unfortunately, not under good circumstances, three times in a row. But we spent a little time downtown and spent most of the time in North Chicago. I hope it wasn't the winter time. because <laughs> It actually was. It was incredible, man. Yeah, if I could say, don't ever go to Chicago in the winter, but any other season, you're going to love it. It's a tremendous city, and it's not just because I was born there and raised there. It's one of the greatest cities in this country. It, it, it's like everything that New York has, but it has the Midwest mentality of every person who's walking down the street. They'll give you the shirt off their back. It's just a great city to have grown up in. I had everything you could possibly want. It's a great acting school. I went to the Goodman School of Drama. Uh, which was a part of the Art Institute at the time when I went to school and I was a part of DePaul University. But uh, the city gave me everything I could ever want. Again, I, I grew up five blocks from Wrigley Field, which is the Cubs on my team. After all of the years of waiting, I finally got a, a World Series out of them a couple of years ago. So and that's off my bucket list. And uh, the West End is next on my bucket list in England. You've been the golden boy since the get-go, right? You're super good-looking. 
You obviously took very good care of yourself. You had the cat by the tail, didn't you? Yeah, look, I've been blessed. Again, right place, right time, talent, meeting the opportunity. Honestly, I just feel that uh, if you just treat life the way you want to be treated, things will come to you. I, I'm a strong believer in karma, and that's pretty much all I've done my entire life. I've treated everybody that I've worked with with respect. The producer that uh, I worked for in the UK, I did a show for him on Broadway called Blood Brothers years ago and always respected my work ethic and everything and said, I, I really want to bring you to the UK for one of these days. Well, the opportunity came up. He called and said, I'm putting this tour of La Caja Fall together. I've always felt that you would be perfect to George in this role. And I didn't have much of a handle on it and saying, okay, I'll give it a shot if you think so. He was right. It was like, after all these years, I've found a new character I can really get behind, and he's a wonderful character, and uh, he called me. I didn't call him. And again, it's because of, I think, of the way I treat my work professionally whenever I get something, that people recognize that. And I think that Zach and Dylan, maybe have, it's kind of rubbed off on them. They see how I treat people that I work with and everything, and uh, I think I'm getting the feedback from many of the venues that they play the people that knew me when I was there doing it, they see Zach and Dylan coming in. They said that they could see that they're my sons. Yeah. They, uh, they have absorbed it. You've always come off as authentic. They clearly are coming off as authentic, which is refreshing. It's like you get what you see. This is me. Well, that's cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, honestly, I know that you may potentially be getting back in bed with Mr. Hooker himself. I watched the opening of the pilot. I watched the opening of season one, episode one, and uh, oh, T.J. Hooker. Yeah. Oh no, kidding! It was a roller coaster ride for me because the actual pilot of Hooker was a two-hour movie of the week, and it was about Bill being a sergeant teaching rookie cops, not just me. And from the time that we did that pilot, and the time that Hooker was picked up. Everything had changed. It was going to be like, you know, the TV show Dallas and Dynasty. So it was really supposed to be a soap opera. And from the time the pilot happened to the time that it was picked up, they said they just wanted uh, Bill and I to be in the squad car. And he was my mentor. It was unbelievable. You know, I, I went from being a part of a cast of 15 to him and me in a car. It was really remarkable. So that was cool that that had happened. Again, synergy. Had Cooker been picked up immediately, I would not have been able to do the movie Grease 2. Because when we did the pilot, they said, we're holding on to you and the options for it to be picked up. It probably will be picked up as a mid-season replacement. So I had like a six, seven-month period, and then I got Grease 2, and I shot Grease 2 during that entire time. And then went right into just shooting Hooker. So it was like a great one-two punch for me. Here I was starring with William Shatner and that, and then the following year, Grease 2 came out, and that launched my career like crazy. Being, you know, with Bill, that's one of the fun things we're trying to do right now is it's almost like what we're putting together is it's like what it was like, what we were really like behind those characters. Right. What Adrian and Bill were like while we were shooting it. Bill has allowed himself to show who he really is in his older years. Back in those days, he was Captain Kirk and he was T.J. Hooker. He really didn't show the fun side of him very much. He was intense. There's absolutely no question that he was intense. But honestly, once the cameras were off, we were a couple of guys just having fun. We were playing cops and robbers. And we were joking all the time. 
the person that you see now is the real Bill that you see in talk shows and things like that. And I actually think it all started with Priceline, that you really started to see this guy that it was a practical joke and really had a lot of fun, you know, behind the, the camera. Back then, he was bogged down with keeping up the persona of being Hooker or Kirk and not allowing the, the public to really see who he really was. Now you're seeing who he is, and he has no problems letting people see who he is now, and I think that's what is going to be fun about this new project that we're trying to do because it's what it was really like when the cameras were off but we're literally in the process of pitching it and uh, and putting it together right now. But uh, it should be fun. I love the spot you did for Me TV, where it's you and that Porsche. Yeah, I literally did that when I came back from England. I stopped off in Chicago. Me TV, their offices are in Chicago, and I stopped off to do some promos for them and also to visit my brother. And that was fun. It was super too. funny. You cross your eyes before the car goes over the cliff, which was a brilliant face that you made that, that was worth the whole thing and then to say does my hair look okay in the end was so you know that's probably very old Shatner pretty much yeah. <laughs> yeah. so that's good that kind of set me up now I can see I mean I've seen him in recent days I hadn't seen you really doing a whole lot I did catch a, a few clips of you dancing back in the day with your harem of dancers that was pretty funny to see Oh, the uh, dance fever? Yes, dance fever. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Hooker was canceled. Literally, the the day after it was canceled, Merv Griffin called my agent and said that he wanted me to uh, take over on dance fever. And in my heart, I'm a song and dance man. I'm a Broadway hooker and singer. And uh, when I had an opportunity in Hollywood to sing and dance every week, uh, yeah, and what happened was, it was a very strange thing. I said yes, and that was that. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, they said, we still need about 10 episodes to finish the five-year syndication package. Hooker has been picked up in late night on CBS for 10 more episodes. And I had already committed to Dance Fever, so I did not do those last 10 episodes. And it was very difficult. It was really tough for me to not be able to do that because Hooker was my family. Like not being able to complete the journey that you had had for almost five years, but I couldn't do both at the same time. I went over to Dance Fever and I did that for two years. I don't regret it at all. It was a blast. I had so much fun doing that show. And again, how often do you get to sing and dance in Hollywood? You were married at the time while you were on Dance Fever? Yes. Yeah, married to the Zach and Dylan's mom. Absolutely. Dylan was born during Dance Fever. Do you think whether they were good or bad relationships, aside from that, just the fact that you were committed maybe kept you out of a lot of the kooky business of dating and things while you were at the height of your career? You're probably right. I was married during those years in the 80s, during Hooker and Dance Fever and everything. And uh, it wasn't until the, the 90s that, uh, that I saw the, where we were completely different human beings and I wanted to do theater and be away from home doing theater and she kind of like uh, didn't see that and uh, you know one thing went to another and uh, it was a tough time but I always stayed uh, very close to Zach and Dylan uh, even if I was on tour I would call them every night and say goodnight to them there wasn't a night that didn't go by and everybody turned out great and I went back to theater I think you kind of got bailed out of going down a potentially bad road that a lot of other young, good-looking people who became super successful didn't come out alive. You know, it's a very interesting thing that you would say that. I kind of, like, never looked at it that way. But, you know, I never did drugs in the 80s, and we all know the 80s were, 
there were, especially in Hollywood. I never did it, and I was really not aware of it. And I remember there was a huge drug bust on the Warner Brothers lot. I arrived at work at our soundstage, and right across from us was the uh, Dukes of Hazard soundstage. And apparently it all had to do with some crew member involved in that soundstage and that crew that was dealing a lot of stuff to Hollywood, and it was a huge drug bust on the lot. And it was literally across the way from where my motorhome was parked all the time. And I never, in five years, knew what was going on. Wow. <laughs> literally 20 feet from my front door of my motorhome. You were a good boy. Why would you know anything I, that's going on? I guess I was busy being an actor and trying to do the best work that I could do. And you're probably right. Because I was married and stuff, it kept me in line. I mean... I think of all of my peers from that time and all the troubles that they have gone through. So many dear friends that I've lost. Jeff Conaway was a very dear friend of mine. I loved him very much. And in the later years, the general public really did not see who Jeff really was. He was a wonderful, kind, loving person. The person that everybody saw was not him anymore. And it was because of that time and drugs. I think of what happened to David Cassidy. He's a good friend. I did uh, a show with him on Broadway. Mm. He never really came out of that. You know, you're right. But so many of the people in that era kind of like never let go of that lifestyle. I photographed one of his later shows at Seventh Feathers here. So I got to be backstage with a guy that I watched growing up. I mean, it was yeah. super amazing to be there. But he got on stage, apologized in advance to the audience for maybe not putting on a good show. And he yeah. ended up killing. The ladies were just as I had hoped, all swooned and screaming for him. I took some of the greatest photographs I've ever taken, absolutely in his element. I worked with him and Sean on Broadway, a called Blood Brothers. Played the twins separated at birth, and I was the narrator of the show. So a lot of time uh, with the two of them, uh, it just broke my heart. Whenever he was on stage, he was in his element. He shed his skin, but it took a while for him to get to that point as the show would go on. But once he's into it, the rest of the world did not exist, and that was probably when he was at home the most. I had an incredible manager, and uh, I owe a lot to him. The first thing he said to me when I, I left Broadway, finally come out to Hollywood, he said, don't ever believe your own publicity. Don't ever take seriously what I say about you. He totally put me in my place and said, our job is to put you on a pedestal and make everybody think that you're the greatest. Don't ever think that you're greater than the person who you're standing next to. And it was great advice. Yeah. <laughs> I never treated the guy who pushed a broom on our set differently than I treated Bill Shatner. Sounds yeah. like you come from a, a relatively stable household. Yeah. Your father was in the clergy. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to imagine, again, I see this poster child. You did really well in school. You were probably very popular, probably very funny and entertaining, very charismatic. And you just had a good time growing up, and it reflects your appreciation and good time continuing on later in life. Yes, most of my youth was exactly that. I was like the little star of our church. I was always singing and dancing, and uh, the Eastern Orthodox, services are all sung in Gregorian chants. 
there's hardly any sermons and stuff. So I put things from the moment I was out of the womb, and my father knew that I was the one of the brothers, of his sons, who really had the voice. My brothers couldn't sing at all. What's funny is, is that in high school, I was playing football, and I really thought I was going to play football and get a scholarship going to, to Notre Dame. Then I broke my leg very, very badly. In fact, it, my, leg, my leg was almost going to be amputated. It was so bad.
And that changed my life completely. I really thought I was going to go to school on a football scholarship, maybe study to be an architect or something like that. But one thing led to another, and uh, it was a gymnastics coach that I had had that after my second operation to, to fix my leg, one of my legs is shorter than the other, and he said, why don't you take a ballet class to try to uh, help your balance? And I thought it was silly and stupid, but I tried it. One thing led to another, and I auditioned for a, a musical that uh, that was happening because I wanted to meet girls. And uh, one thing led to another, and I said, I'm really good at this. Okay, so I'm not going to play football. I'll be an actor. <laughs> the rest is history. Synchronicity. Yeah, I probably never would have become an actor had, I, had that really not happened. I just had this ability because of going up in the church and singing and dancing. I kind of like was already training for it before I ever even knew it. One thing happened that changes the trajectory of everything in your life. Yeah, it definitely did. There's absolutely no question. And to tell you the truth, lying in a body cast from my neck down to my toes for four months in a hospital, I thought my life was over. And then uh, after a few operations, trying to rehabilitate myself, and that's when suddenly this musical theater kind of fell into my lap. And it was all really by accident that it all happened. And it was probably because I wanted to meet girls. <laughs> wanted to meet girls, ended up becoming a monogamous machine, and didn't do any of the things that potentially you could have done, which maybe would not have helped you down the road, as we've already talked about. So how interesting it is, you did meet girls, you at least met three that you ended up being with. You could have been the Wilt Chamberlain of meeting girls at that point. Funny that you say that. It's pretty much right after my knee was better and, and rehabilitated and I was now doing musical theater, that's when I met my first wife. That year that all that happened, and that was pretty much the only person I ever dated. Pretty uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Hey, this is like therapy, Mark. <laughs> I'm glad you're getting something out of it. So what was your relationship? I, I would imagine it was pretty good with your parents. I was boring. I was a preacher. You were a kid, nerd, right? I was, I was pretty much a nerd. Yeah. Uh, I tried not to be a nerd. Like I, I first started playing the drums so I could be cooler and things. And I was in a band even while I was doing the football uh, uh, and everything. But uh, in the Eastern Orthodox religion... When you go to confession, you don't go in a confessional booth. You just literally kneel in front of the priest, and he puts his hands on your head, and you start confessing. Yeah. You know what it was like to go to confession when your father was your father? You couldn't tell him anything, or did you have to tell him everything? I did tell him absolutely everything, but I was still a pretty good kid. I mean, yeah. you know, the things that were not great that I wouldn't tell him, other kids would say, are you kidding me? It's I was blessed with my parents. My father, he had a, an amazing voice as a priest. All of the American Romanian churches in the, in the country always said that my dad had the most beautiful voice of all the priests. So that's where I got that from. That's where Zach and Dylan are getting their things from. For me, going to church every week was like going to a show. I remember when I was on a talk show once in the beginning of my career, I literally slipped in my description of my father and said, yeah, when I used to go to... Uh, the church on Sunday and see my father performing up on stage uh, on the altar. I slipped and I said, that's what it was like. It was like a theater for me every Sunday and it was a show.
watching all the time and then the antithesis of him was my mother who was all not in the limelight she was always in the shadows but always kind and loving and uh to her dying day she still only spoke romanian <laughs> and that's how i could we could only talk to her when i went to my father and said that i wanted to become an actor that was not an easy time you know he's a man from the old country who wanted his sons to be vocationalist, a doctor, an architect, uh, or whatever, and I wanted to be an actor. That was not an easy thing, but secretly, my mother had always dreamt, since she was a child in Romania, she would get all of the movie magazines and dream of having a, a son or a husband someday that was a movie star. And it was my mother that secretly supported me the entire time that I wanted to become an actor and go to acting school. Shine, see. 
came around. When he saw that I could actually make a living, he came around, but he just had the funniest simplicity about what I did as an actor. After he saw the first few episodes of T.J. Hooker, he said to me, you work one hour. What do you do for the rest of the week? <laughs> and he, he didn't quite understand it took 13 hours a day, seven days right, a week right. to make that one hour. And then when he came out and visited the set, he said, waste of time. Ah. Secretly, my mother was always my supporter. How did your mother get along with your father? It was an old country relationship. They <laughs> they met on a Tuesday and got married on a Thursday, and they were married for 70 years to the day my father died.
story of why they met on a Tuesday and, and got married on a Thursday was that in the Eastern Orthodox faith, a priest, before he gets ordained, has to be married, or else he can't get married after he's been ordained. So that loophole kind of eluded him for a while, and then all of a sudden he was being ordained that weekend. And he and my grandfather started knocking on the doors in our little town to all of the eligible ladies. <laughs> he eventually went back to the house where he met my mother and uh, said, so what do you think? She said, sure, why not? <laughs> And it was like he was the knight in shining armor. She wanted out of Romania to go to America, and it eventually happened. It was like Camelot wow. uh, when they came to Chicago. My parents were young, attractive, and he was the priest, and they were the, the golden couple when they came to the congregation in, in Chicago. Pretty cool. What are your brothers doing now? Well, they're both retired. My oldest brother was just a, a regular guy and worked for Sears his uh, entire life. And my next brother, who's only about a year younger than him, he studied art for a long time, tried to be an artist, and eventually became an engineer for nuclear reactors. They had good lives themselves. Yeah. Do you guys ever hang out, get together, family reunion stuff? The younger of the two, he's lived in Los Angeles for uh, oh, 20 years now, maybe even longer. Uh, so I saw him a lot, and I get back to Chicago to see my older brother as much as I can. Still pretty close to my brother's. You're in Las Vegas? Yeah, and that's because of my wife. She's a singer here at Harrah's, and uh, I just got tired of driving back and forth, so I said, uh, I'm just going to live here now. How do you like living in Vegas? I love it. Uh, a lot of people don't get it, but it's like living in the valley. A few blocks away from the Strip, it's just a residential city. It's great. And the cost of living is phenomenal here. Plus, it reminds me of what Broadway used to be like. The entertainment community is a very small community, and we all know each other. I, I love that part of Las Vegas. It may look like a big city, but it's not at all. And it's getting bigger and bigger every day. Now we've got a hockey team that's gone to the Stanley Cup, and now we're getting the Raiders here. Did you say the Raiders are coming to Las Vegas? The Oakland Raiders will be here Shut by 2019. What? Yeah, right across from Mandalay Bay. The city is exploding. It's because now they're, they're saying it's okay to have a professional sports team, that there isn't a problem with the gambling. Now that that's opened the door, there's a lot of building and jobs coming. Vegas is a great place to have your home base. All roads lead to Vegas. Adrian, I really appreciate that you were willing to spend a little time on the show, and uh, I appreciate that Rich connected us. Yeah, I'm glad to. Thank you, Mark. And uh, obviously, when I come to last one, let's get some coffee and uh, do some more talking. I look forward to it. And all the best okay. to your sons and all the great work they're doing. And uh, we'll catch up another time, man. All right. You take care. Cheers, Adrian. Happy birthday, Norm. This is your cousin, Jeff calling all the way to Oregon, 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 one of those, to wish you a happy birthday because, you know, L.A. traffic. Okay, that makes no sense. But either does the fact that you're 80 years old and still look so freaking handsome. I, I hope those genes carry over to my side of the family. Happy 80th birthday. I love you, cuz. Have a great one. Hope to see you soon. Hey, Grandpa. It's your 80th birthday. That's pretty cool. I hope you're having a good time, and I hope you have a good day. Tell Grandma I said I love you, and happy 80th birthday.
that's show number 50. I hope you enjoyed it. It's been a super fun ride getting to this point. I want to thank everybody from today, starting with uh, Martha Davis of the fabulous Motels, who sang the opening happy birthday. Thanks, Martha. You're such a sweet friend. That's very nice of you to do that. I'd like to thank Adrian Smet. Adrian, you are just a cool cat. Super easy to talk to. Just a genuine guy doing his thing, overcame adversity, learned hard lessons, worked hard, got huge, is enjoying life. Good for you, man. Happy birthday to my dad. Happy birthday, dad. 80. Dang, dude. You look great. And, uh, you know, just keep it up. Appreciate it. Love you. I would like to thank all the people that came on the show and said happy birthday. Cousin Jeff, Sam, your grandson, Jeff Pivar and Inger Jorgensen, Marlena de Pasadena, Lucky Doug Fergus, and Gene Burnett. I'd also like to thank Zach and Dylan Zmed for letting me use some of their music to score the conversation with their father. Those tracks came off the janks. Thanks, fellas. Look forward to having you on the show, too. And uh, they're also that uh, explosive act going around the world called the Everly Brothers Experience. Check them out. Thank you, Rich. It was fun with you. Thanks for sharing your intense experience with us. And uh, yeah, psychotropics, man. That's a ticket to a sane and reasonable future. All right, thanks again for listening as always. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Thank you, Ruth Kennedy, for your absolute generosity. Timely, beautiful, generous. Thank you to Dan Elster, throwing down like James Brown. I got people who love what I do, so I keep doing what I do. All kinds of interesting things going on. Have a great rest of your week, and uh, thanks again. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Hey, Mark. This is Marlena. I wanted to leave a message for your dad for his 80th birthday. So maybe I'll just sing a little song. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Norman. Happy birthday to you. May you live a hundred years. Happy birthday to you. Lots of love, especially to you, Norm, on your big birthday. I'm right behind you. I turned 79 in May. Oh, my goodness. Where has the time gone? Never mind. We're still having fun. Lots of love to you and all the family. Bye for now. Norm, how is it that you'll be 80? You look like you're 18. Normie, Norm. You are the cutest little Normie, Norm. And you are nothing really like a storm. You are normie, norm. Oh, yes, you are like a storm because you storm across the land and then you're normie, norm. I wish you all the very best, my little friend. And if you're 18 again, and instead of 80, my friend, 
I'm running out of oranges that don't rhyme with anything. Happy birthday, Norm. Hmm, I like that.